The word comes from Galatians 3:23 through 29. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have, come, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Thank you guys for being here. Uh, got a little bit of an echo there, JR. I'll let you figure that out, what's going on. Uh, appreciate you guys being here. Uh, my name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here. If I didn't get a chance to meet you beforehand, please introduce yourself. Um, you guys that are here, if this is your first time, I know I met some of you guys. Um, enjoy the toned backness of service this morning because it's not like this in two weeks. Um, so um, for the you college students that are here, it's good to see you guys. Didn't expect to see you this morning, so appreciate you guys kind of sticking around and, and hanging out with us and hope you guys enjoy um, your spring break this week. It was really funny. I saw a student um, two nights ago at Texas Roadhouse with my family. And she was kind of sitting with her friends, and I, I said, hey, how are you? You know, have a great spring break. And she goes, you too. And then she, she's a freshman, so she kind of had that look of, oh, no, what have I just done? And, and I said, it's okay. And she goes, yeah, you don't get spring breaks anymore, do you? And I'm like, nope, I'm in the real world now. Haven't had one for roughly 10 years. <laughs> Those days are long gone. I was like, but enjoy them while you have them. So, um, kind of let you guys know where we're at this morning, what we're doing. Um, we're going to be finishing up Galatians chapter 3 um, this morning. Um, and this will mark the, the halfway point of kind of getting through this particular uh, book of the Bible. And, um, you know, we've, we, we started going through it about the second or third week of January, and we'll finish up sometime in May. Um, but the section of Scripture that we're going to look at this morning and that Joel just read for us is actually going to build off of what we looked at over the course of the last couple of weeks. Because what Paul has been doing is he's kind of been building up his case against uh, what, what has been going on in these particular churches in Galatia. And so um, I'm not going to spend a ton of time recapping, but I do want to spend roughly just about five minutes so that I can kind of make sure that we're all on the same page as we kind of enter into this, this topic of, of what the law means. And when I say the law, I mean the Old Testament rules and regulations that, that God had laid forth, kind of like the, the Ten Commandments, if you will, but also the other roughly 580 rules and regulations that God had laid out for the nation of Israel about who they were supposed to be. And so he's, he's going to be giving kind of this, this picture of what we're going to see of comparing the law and comparing what faith in Christ looks like and, and why it's so terrible that these Galatian churches are running back to the law. And so what has been happening is Paul planted the, these churches in southern Galatia, which is modern-day Turkey, uh, somewhere probably in the, in the mid-80s, And if you know anything about the book of Acts, if you follow Paul around, what he does is he goes and he plants a church, then he establishes leadership there, and then he leaves and he continues on. 
and it'll go to another part of the Roman world to start more churches. And what ended up happening is, as after he had left this church, there were some teachers from the church of Jerusalem that had moved into some of these churches. And what they did is they started teaching these non-Jewish, um, Gentile, Roman, Greek, um, uh, Turkish men and women who had become followers of Jesus... Yes, you need to place your faith in Christ, but you also need to follow the Jewish cultural and religious rites as laid out in the Old Testament. And so once Paul got word of this through the grapevine as he was off planting another church somewhere, he immediately wrote these letters to circulate around to them saying, whoa, 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 stop. Okay, what I taught you about who God is and who Jesus Christ is, is all you need, right, for godliness, hope, and perseverance, and to be right before God. Paul's main point is that justification, and when I use that word, I mean to be declared not guilty for your sin before God. So justification is by God's free grace through faith in Jesus, but so is sanctification, that sanctification is fueled by faith, not by our obedience. And so when Paul's been kind of making this argument, saying over the course of this letter, stop running away from trusting Jesus for everything. Stop running away from him to perform instead, right? What ultimately ended up happening is the, the Jewish teachers that were hanging out in Galatia, he knew would raise questions and, well, what about the Old Testament law then? What point does it have? Why have the Old Testament in the first place? Why care about what God had said to Moses and David and Abraham? Why follow any of those rules and regulations? And so last week I talked about a few reasons about the role of the Old Testament law in the life of a Christian. Right, both in AD 45, AD 50, when Paul wrote this letter to the Galatian churches, but really, in reality, for us, some 2,000 years later, the same things reign true. Right? And, and that is this. The Old Testament, Old Testament law, the primary reason it existed was that it was supposed to be a litmus test for us to kind of reveal to us who we really are. And I've been using this example over the course of the last, you know, seven or eight weeks of what the purpose of the law is in the fact that it's a test. If my son, Josiah, he's, he's a little two-year-old. Uh, he's really cute, um, but he's fully in the throes of the terrible twos. So if you see him around here and he's throwing a fit, just point him along to me or my wife. We would be happy to take care of his screaming fits that he's going through right now. But he has epilepsy. And one of the things that we've kind of found over the course of time over the last two years is that every time he has uh, a, a batch of seizures and we take him into the hospital, they hook him up to what's called an EEG to kind of test his brain waves and figure out what's going on and confirm whether he's had a seizure or not. And, and inevitably, every time that they hook him up to that EEG, it confirms or says no that he hasn't had a seizure. And most of the time, it confirms that he does have one. Now, the point of that EEG is to simply verify whether something abnormal is going on in his brain or not. It's simply a test. It's a tool used by the doctors to be able to understand what's going on. Now, the point I've been making is the EEG is a lot like the Old Testament law, right? The EEG can reveal to Jackie and I and to, to Josiah's neurologists that Josiah does in fact have epilepsy. But that is all that it is good for. 
right? The, the, the EEG in no way will cure my son of his epilepsy or in some way be able to um, therapeutically stop the seizures from happen, happening, lessen them in some way, shape, or form. That the EEG's sole purpose is to simply reveal to us whether something abnormal is going on in my son's brain or not. And I've kind of joked around how crazy it would be if I made my son wear the EEG machine and, and walked around for the rest of his life, right? But here's the reality. The, the Old Testament law is given to us by God to reveal to us that we're sinners. It's simply a test. It says you live your life and then you compare it up against God's standard and you see how you measure up. And inevitably what that's going to do every time for you and I is show us you fall short of God's standard. God's standard is perfection throughout the Old Testament law. And if we place our lives up against that test, inevitably it's going to show that we fail. Now the problem for the Galatian churches and really 2,000 years later Christians today is that we look at the Old Testament law and we realize in the beginning we can't keep that standard the same way we realize with my son. He has epilepsy. But what we tend to do if we are a follower of God is we run to the test continuously even after realizing we fall short of the standard. We might say something like this oh, I fall short of the standard, what do I do? Right? God is holy, perfect, good, and I am not, what do I do? And that's when somebody will tell you that Jesus came and freely died for your sins to forgive you and reconcile you to God for, for your transgressions against that standard. But then after we might accept that, you know, some kids pray a little prayer when they're young. Some kids go away to camp and come back and they've prayed a prayer. Some people are like me, they got to college and then someone shared the gospel with them and God slowly worked on my heart over time and broke me down. Some people come later in life. But if you're a Christian, you've responded to that message of what Jesus did on the cross for you. And inevitably when looking at the law then in light of that, Christians have this tendency to then say, okay, Jesus died for my sins, but I'm going to run back to the law and try to perform. I'm going to try to justify myself by being obedient and perfect as often as I can. And what Paul has been saying throughout the course of his letter is, if you do that, you have missed the point of why Jesus died for your sins. That you're trying to add to the cross and you can't do that. And so the primary reason we have the law even some 2,000 years after Christ came on this earth is that it's a test to reveal to you and I where we stand before God. And that test only reveals to you and I, yes, that we're sinners. Now the other thing I talked about last week is the reason the law exists is that it restrains human sin in some way, whether someone's a follower of God or not. And I kind of use that example of if you're speeding, you might speed and go 45 in a 35, but you're probably not going to do 75 in a 35. What's restraining you is the fear of getting a reckless driving ticket and having your license taken away from you because there's a law there. In the same way, having some of these restrictions in place that God has put in his law restricts the sinfulness of human beings in many ways, in a common way, whether they're really a follower of God or not. They'll, we'll read and say, stealing is wrong in the eyes of God, I shouldn't do that. Murder is wrong in the eyes of God. I'm not going to do that. It's going to restrain me. Whether I really love God or not, I'm going to be restrained in some way, shape, or form. And we said the third reason that the, the law still exists is to actually reveal to you and I the depth of how sinful we are. Not just that we are sinners, but the depth of that sin. And what I mean by that is if you and I look at the law and we transgress against that law, typically what we'll do 
is in some way, shape, or form try to make ourselves look better in light of that law. And I shared this example last week of if you steal something and then someone asks you if you stole it and you know you did, inevitably what happens next is you try to lie and work your way through it in some way, shape, or form, right? And that what the law inevitably shows you and I is that it's not just that we stole, but that ultimately, right, at the depth of our hearts, we are at war against God and rebellion towards him. And the depth of our own sin is far worse than we would ever be willing to admit because sin begets sin because if you steal, you lie. And if you lie, you cover up more lies. And and it ends up being this vicious cycle over and over again. And so what we get to today in our text is that Paul is differentiating finally at the end of chapter 3 what the law does and what the gospel does. What the Old Testament rules and regulations do, and what the good news of what Jesus Christ has done for the entire world does for each and every one of us. And what he's going to say is, is the law ultimately interacts with us in the plane, in the plane of, of, of what we talked about here earlier. The gospel, though, differs from the law because it's personal and it's about relationships. Okay, and so look at Galatians chapter uh, 3 with me, verses 23 through 25. We're going to be working through about six or seven verses um, this morning. And the first section we're going to look at is Paul's last little bit on the Old Testament law. And then the next bit is going to be about what life for those that declare themselves to be Christians looks like. Okay, so verse 23. Paul says, now before faith came... We were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So Paul mentions two things here that kind of add to these purposes of the law that we've been talking about up until this point. Okay? And there's two words that I want to key in on. Okay, the first one is, is imprison. Okay, if you look at the original language in the Greek, which is what the New Testament was written in, it literally means to be held captive. And so what Paul is saying about the way that the law interacts with you and I is it's a military term showing that you and I, if we try to follow the law perfectly and be perfect good Christians or perfect good followers of God, what inevitably ends up happening to us is that we're under military surveillance being imprisoned by it. That 24-7, you must be following and obedient to the law at all times. Paul says that, that following the Old Testament rules and regulations lock us up and make us prisoners. So Paul's trying to drive this point home to the churches of Galatia that the law can be compared to a maximum security prison. You know, and, it, and I don't know if any of you guys ever saw that old show, Prison Break, because that's the first thing I thought of when I'm reading that. Except, guess what? There's no prison breaking this. <laughs> there's, there's no way out of what's going on here. That the law of what God has given, right, towards us, there's no means by escaping it except for one. And that's through Christ. That otherwise we place ourselves underneath the need to obey fully 24-7, 365. And that it demands that of us all times. Okay, so the first term that Paul uses to describe the law is imprisonment. Right, sounds like a lot of fun, right? The second term he uses is this term guardian. 
Now, some translations, depending on what translation of the Bible you have, will use the word tutor. And the word literally just means to supervise. But in Paul's day, this term was used for someone who supervised children for their parents. And typically that person was a slave. And what they did is they lived with the family and they were completely in charge of taking care of the kids while the, the parents were off doing business, uh, being involved in uh, various levels of the, the local government. But that this servant of the house lived with the family their whole life and their sole job was to care for the kids. They did the disciplining, they did the cooking, they did the cleaning, they took care of the kids when they were sick, they made sure that they were getting an education. This was the entire role of this particular person. It's kind of like the idea of a nanny today, but uh, with a lot more emphasis on control and constant surveillance. Typically, th this term was used for like more wealthy and prominent families, and it was a way to keep the kids out of trouble and make sure that they grew up and became productive members of society. Meaning that this person was constantly watching the kids, and the kids were under constant surveillance from this tutor. And so here you have Paul saying, okay, if we're going to describe the way that we were late with the law before faith in Christ came, here's how I can best describe it for you guys. Imprisonment and being underneath a guardian. And Paul is not in any way, right, cooking up some random ideas of what the law is. He's very intentional about his language because he wants these followers of Jesus, many of them whom he met when he started these churches, he wants them to understand the difference between the Old Testament law and what he preached to them when he first started these churches, which is who Jesus was and why the cross matters. And here's kind of the, re the reality, right? And, and I don't know if you're seeing the difference yet. Because the, the, the idea of following Jesus is relational and free and forgiveness and mercy and love and hope. Words of, and, of affirmation and acceptance that we would use for those who are in Christ. And yet the terms that he uses to describe what Christians often do, which is maybe say a prayer to invite Jesus into their hearts, but then run back to performance-based law-keeping Christianity, the terms he uses for that are imprisonment, guardian, right, under constant surveillance, imprisonment. And ultimately what he's saying is, is if you run back to the law for your justification, it will lead to a removal of freedom. And more importantly, it's going to show you a lack of intimacy and personal connection with God, your creator. That what Paul preached to them when they started these churches was that they were alienated from God because of their sin. But because of Jesus, they were restored to a full relationship with God. But that if they ran back to the law as a means of living their life in front of God and before him, inevitably what they were going to do is remove their freedom, remove their intimacy, remove the ability for personal connection with God because they were looking at the law as their supervisor instead of ultimately what we're going to see in just a moment, God as Father. He wants them to see the danger of the path they are heading down. See, ultimately what 
the issue is in the book of Galatians, what these churches are struggling with is they're trying to justify themselves, right? What they've done basically, if I can sum it up easily, is say, hey, we need a Jesus to forgive us, but now what we're going to do for the rest of our lives is live for God, and we're going to be these perfect Christians, and we're going to follow the rules and regulations, and everyone's going to know us, and we're going to be able to show God how much we love Him and how great we are because of what we're doing. And this leads to a major problem because they're even probably using good language, like, I'm searching after God. I'm seeking to be obedient. I love Him so much. This is what I'm looking to do. And inevitably, Paul says they're doing the exact opposite of what they're seeking to do. If they're seeking intimacy and love and joy for God, they're finding the exact opposite in the fact that they're binding themselves up with nothing but rules and regulations. And guys, we are in the South, and this is one of the major problems I see the South facing. So if you grew up in this area, you, you probably can relate in many ways with what I'm talking about this morning. I, I grew up in Virginia, and so we were right on, we were like the top part of the buckle on the Bible Belt. And I was in Northern Virginia, so even more so, right? And so it was kind of like this weird, eclectic culture where, you know, half the people were like standard churchgoers, and you had, this, and you had this other half of people that were kind of like, I don't even know what a church is, I've never been in one in my life. And so... And so for, for my family, you know, we, we went to church on a, a, a semi-regular basis, but then once we got older and got into sports, we kind of stopped going, okay? And so here's inevitably what, what I kind of missed along the way, but being in kind of like the top part of the Bible belt, the culture still kind of got ingrained in me. If you believe in God, you need to follow God and live for God and do what God tells you to do. That's just kind of the southern way, right? You know, we're, hey, we're going to be polite. We're going to drink sweet tea. We're going to go to church on Sundays, right? We're going to help old ladies cross the street. We're going to be good people, right? And the reality is, is like the South kind of has this reputation for being friendlier. And I can tell you with 100% truth that it is, right? If you've ever spent any time in Boston or New York, right, people don't open the door for you, okay? They're like, why would I open the door for you? I got a place to be right now. Why don't you open it for yourself, right? We're all equal here. Let's, let's move on. And I'm not saying that that's wrong. <laughs> I'm just saying it's the difference between the South and the North. Okay. And so we'd say like, oh, you know, Southerners are so nice. They're so sweet. It's such a great place to live. You know, they, they kind of have like this, this thing where they love God and they're, they're connected with Him. But what inevitably ends up happening though is we, the South has this issue where they tend to view God kind of the way the Galatian churches were. I think, if I can be so blunt, say the majority of Southerners don't really worship the God of the Bible. The majority of people since I've moved down here, as I've met them, if they're, if they're not in a, a vibrant relationship walking with the Lord, have a basic belief in God, but the God they believe in is, is what's been coined as the God of therapeutic moralistic deism. Okay, and bear with me for a second because I'm going to explain to you what that means. Okay. They view God as this guy in the clouds. Maybe he's got a cool beard and a white robe on. And he kind of spoke everything into existence, kind of like we see in Genesis chapter 1. And he's in charge of everything, but he's not super interested in getting along with our lives. He's some far-off guy. He's uninvolved. And, and he, he'll show up if you really need him. You know, so if things are going bad and you pray enough for him, he'll, he'll show up and he'll, he'll kind of be there. Or you know, if you forward enough of Aunt Petunia's Facebook forwards, 
to, to get God to give you that special blessing, right? And you got, like, it used to happen in email. Now that happens on Facebook. Now I have no idea how that started, I guess, when, when family members came in there. But, you know, by the way, just if I can correct that for a minute, God will bless you whether you forward that email or not, just, just in case you're, you're wondering whether that happens. But what we see is kind of like in the South is this idea of like God's this far off guy. He's not really super involved in our lives, but you need to obey him because when you need him to do something, you need to have been obedient. And basically what they kind of end up treating their relationship with God is, is kind of almost like a, a, a bank account. If they're good and they do good things and they continue to behave, they, they make deposits into this bank account so one day they can cash back out. And God might give them that job. God might cure um, grandma from cancer. God uh, might help them through a really tough season with a breakup from a husband or a wife or a boyfriend or a girlfriend or repair a relationship. But that they have to behave and do the right thing so they can kind of build up that bank account and then cash in on it and then God will pay them back. And the problem with worshiping God that way is one, it's not the God of the Bible. That's, that's the first problem. That's not how God describes himself at all to us throughout the scripture. But, but the other problem with worshiping God that way is what they inevitably don't realize they're doing is they're doing what the Galatian churches were doing, which is putting themselves back underneath the law and worshiping it in many ways. And what they're doing is they're leaving themselves in bondage because what that actually creates, if you, if you worship the God of therapeutic moralistic deism, Right, where you only really want God when you need him and you kind of view his rules and regulations as something you kind of have to follow uh, to, to make those deposits, but otherwise you don't really give him a whole lot of afterthought, is you end up being in a constant state of anxiety over your relationship with God. And here's what I mean by that. If you're doing the right thing, you're being obedient. You're following the Ten Commandments and doing the other things you feel like you're supposed to be doing as a follower of God. Here's what you're kind of thinking. Well, God's going to bless me. He's going to show up. He's going to hear my prayers. He's going to help me. What if he doesn't? What if God continues to allow my son to have epilepsy and seizures? But I worship him in the sense that he and I have this give and take relationship where I give, 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 and, and then he takes, 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 and then I can take from him, and he gives healing to my son. And I'm doing all the things I'm supposed to do, and I'm praying, I'm reading my Bible, I'm going to church, I'm going to Sunday school, I'm going to a community group, I'm, I'm serving the poor, I'm doing all these things that I'm supposed to be, I'm, 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 I'm not sinning as much as I used to, and then God doesn't show up, what inevitably ends up happening? You're anxious, you're bitter, you're upset, you don't understand why. All the while not knowing that's not how living and walking with God really works. So you're in this constant state of anxiety that I need to do, I need to do, I need to do, I need to do. And if I don't do, God, God won't show up. But if I do do, God might show up. And I just said do-do, that's kind of strange. But then if you find yourself doing the wrong thing over and over again, right? then, you, then you're in this other state of anxiety. You're like, God's mad at me. He's angry at me. He hates me. He's going to punish me. The only thing facing me is what God is going to do me. I, I, I need to hide from him. I can't go to church until I get cleaned up. I can't be around other Christians until I have my life together. I've made so many mistakes, God couldn't possibly forgive me what he's doing. And inevitably, worshiping God in this way, which ultimately is not worship of God, leads to consistent fear and anxiety in a world 
that is already full of plenty of fear, plenty of anxiety, and plenty of hopelessness. And the one thing God wants to be is a shining light into all of that. And we turn and flip his role in our lives to fit him right into everything else that the world is telling us we need to do. If you worship God in this way, you'll try to perform, earn his favor, and you'll be left just like Paul says you will. You'll make the Old Testament law into something it's not as a means to justify yourself before God, and you'll imprison yourself, you'll distance yourself, and you'll estrange yourself from God's love. Tim Keller says this in his commentary on the book of Galatians, that the purpose of the law was to lift the lid off of man's respectability and disclose who he really is underneath. Sinful, rebellious, guilty, under the judgment of God, and helpless to save himself. Guys, the point of the Old Testament is not so you can follow it as closely as possible so that God will love you. It's to reveal to you that you can't possibly keep it, and so you need something else to save you. And that if you run towards the law, you will inevitably... be driven by fear, anxiety, and hopelessness. Now that may look different. It might be hopelessness in the sense of, I have no hope, why am I going on? Or it may be hopelessness in ever wanting to reach out to God. God is this angry, distant figure off in the clouds that's mad at me all the time. Inevitably, I have to stay away from him. So if if I understand Paul correctly here, here's how we should view the law now as Christians. Because I'm a parent, I get to relate a lot to what God says throughout the scriptures and being a parent. And one of the things I get to do with my sons, Gideon who's five and Josiah who's two, is sometimes, unfortunately, we do have to discipline them. And one of the things I always tell people is, is do you think human beings are inherently good when they're born or inherently bad? By the way, it's bad. They're inherently bad, okay? Anyone who's ever been a parent never had to teach their kids to disobey. They just know it from, like, from the outset. Your entire life is trying to do the opposite, teach them to obey, okay? Some of you guys are like, yeah, I remember being a kid. That was me. <laughs> Some of you guys are like, I have a kid right now, and that's exactly what's going on in our house. And so here's what we're, we're doing with our kids is we're, we're teaching them. We have some, some rules and regulations for them, but those rules and regulations don't make them a member of our family. They just are members of our family. They're my sons, And because they're my sons, I love them and I care for them unconditionally, no matter what they do. And I remind them of that frequently. But I also tell them because they are a member of our family, we we do have some ways that we live and some rules to live by. And if they transgress those rules, that there's going to be some discipline to remind them why we do those things. Now, here's the thing. Inevitably, as my kids get older, probably about the age of 13, they're going to start making this transformation from wanting to follow mom and dad all the time to wanting to start to make decisions on their own and live their lives that way. And that's a good thing. It's a good, God designed us as human beings to live that way. Jackie and I are putting in the work now to teach our children some basic things about respecting other people, loving other people, taking care of things, right? Some work ethic things, right? Teaching our, our sons these types of things so that when they hit 13, 14, and 15, and 16, right, they will respond to us in, in a situation where they're by, their, by themselves and they'll say, you know what, 
I'm not under the constant supervision of mom and dad, but I know that mom and dad love me and this is what they told me was best for me. I'm going to follow this. This is how the law is supposed to work in your and I's lives, right? It's not meant to be something that's constantly weighed over top of us saying, you must do this or there's no love, right? That's not how I deal with my family. That's not how I deal with my kids and that's not how God deals with us. But it is just to say, hey, one of the things we're teaching my, kid, my, my youngest son, Josiah, um, when we say to come, we mean come, don't run the opposite direction, especially if that opposite direction is near a street. Okay? We're not trying to rob him of joy or having a good time. Actually, he, and he doesn't understand this right now, he thinks the best thing in the world right now is to run the opposite way and be chased down until a car hits him. Right? I'm not robbing him of joy I'm robbing him of that fleeting pleasure he has for the most joy, which is being able to continue to live his life and not be hit by a car. And God does much the same thing with us in the law. He's not trying to rob you of enjoyment of this life. He created you and he created it. He knows how it works. That by giving us the law, he's saying, this is how to enjoy life the way I intended it to be. And you will receive the most joy. That if you try to earn my favor, though, through the law, It will lead you to limit the scope of what I've said in the law. Meaning, inevitably, if you're trying to perform underneath the Old Testament rules and regulations, you won't be able to do it, and so you'll shrink the standard down into something that's achievable. You might say, oh, I can keep the Ten Commandments, and then you read Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and realize that you've transgressed all of them, and so then you'll start making some rules around them on what it really means to follow the Ten Commandments. And inevitably what you end up doing is you have this really beautiful picture to start out with of how holy and powerful God is and you shrink it down into something smaller. Because you want to perform up to the standard of what God has set. If you're not doing that, the other thing you'll inevitably do is you'll become dishonest about your own performance. Oh, I'm pretty good. I do a pretty good job of keeping the law. I'm a good Christian. I'm a pretty good person. My wife used to always use this example. She spent a summer in China teaching, uh, not teaching, studying Chinese and uh, sharing the gospel with uh, Chinese students at this university. And one thing that's universal about human beings, no matter what culture you grow up in, is how you morally think about yourself. And she, she would always share this example, even with with ladies at the university who had no basic belief in God. She would say, well, how do you feel about yourself more? And they're like, well, I'm a pretty good person. She's like, well, okay, well, tell me, like, who's the best person you could constantly think of? And she heard some, you know, normally people throw out, like, mom or grandma, you know, or, you know, they'll throw out, like, Gandhi or someone like that. And then, you know, she'll say, okay, and she'll put just, like, a little bit of water in this cup that was there. And she'd have three cups out before, and then she'd say, okay, now tell me the best person that you can, uh, the worst person you can think of. You know, for us as Americans, we'll usually list people like Hitler or Mussolini or people who did, like, terrible, horrible things in the course of human history. One girl told Jackie Mike Tyson, (laughs) true story, not making that up. I guess it was not long after he'd bit Evander Holyfield's ear off in a boxing match, (laughs) right? But apparently in China, Mike Tyson is viewed as a villain. (laughs) And so what Jackie would do is she would fill the cup up to about the top and say, okay, this shows all their crimes and how, they, how bad they are of a person. Now, where would you put yourself? And they'd say, oh, you know, somewhere in the middle there. And that, that's, how I view, that's how I view my sin. And that, that, that works across the board about how human beings kind of relate to their moral performance. 
Okay? And she said, so when we're down here looking at these cups, we can see you're in the middle and you're, you're here, and this is how good of a person you are, and here's how good of a person your mom is, and here's how good of a person Hitler or Mike Tyson is. But when God's staring down, what's in those cups? You still have the, you still have the fluid in the cup. That God's standard is an empty cup and no, one, no one's cup is empty. And that the law is simply meant to show you and I that we have sin. That we are sinners. That we do rebel against God. And inevitably, if you look to the law for your justification before God, you will shrink down that standard or you will become dishonest about it. And you'll put yourself in that middle cup because what you do is you don't compare yourself to God's standard. And when, when Jackie said, who's the best person you could possibly think of, like everyone's answer automatically should be Jesus. It's the only person who has ever walked on this earth without sinning. That's not what people do, right? They always name someone else because they still know, hey, grandma, grandma's pretty great, but I've seen her do some things, you know? I, I, I saw her, you know, throw that litter into her neighbor's garden because she's mad about how nice her flowers are compared to hers. You know, I've seen, I've seen grandma, you know, snap at the telemarketer on the telephone. Right? That inevitably what happens is on each level, all of us stand before God guilty. This is what Bob Thume says in his gospel-centered life study, that what we inevitably end up doing if we run to the law is we shrink the cross. We will either shrink God's holiness or we will try to make our own performance more palatable and what inevitably ends up happening is we see less of a need for what Jesus did for us if we do that. And so Paul's saying, look, the law, it's imprisonment. That's all it is. If you try to live by it and perform by it, you are under bondage. But look at what he says in verse 26. He's gonna immediately draw a contrast between what following Jesus looks like. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Look what he says. If you truly believe that Jesus came, lived, and died on the cross for your sins so that he might forgive you for your sins, suffer the wrath of God, and give you his righteousness, you are adopted as a son of God. Now, I've got a room full of men and women, so let me pause here for a second, right? Because we live in a day and age where it's not super popular to use language that just says sons. But Paul is very specific about why he does this, okay? Some of the, I had a, a girl tell me one time in, in college while we were reading through this, she's like, God's kind of chauvinistic, especially Paul. And I'm like, no, 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 no. You have to understand the cultural context of the time they're living in. Okay, first, right, as far as like male-female relations and the, the, the plight of women in 2017, it's a lot better in 2017 than it was in AD 45 when Paul wrote this, Okay. Number two, if you know anything about the way family structures were in f the first century Near East, right, 
Who received the inheritance once a father passed away? I hear, that's all I hear. Firstborn son, the firstborn son. Okay. Does it say, I didn't say firstborn daughter, I said firstborn son. Paul is not using this language just to say that the dudes get to be with Jesus. He's saying, it doesn't matter if you're male or female or who you are. The moment you follow Christ, you participate in the inheritance that God the Father has given Jesus. And this is, this is radical stuff because women were treated on a lower pedestal of society in this time. And what Paul is saying here is, hey, your husband can't tell you that he's a more important member of the kingdom of God than you. Everyone is on the same playing field. That Jesus died for everyone so that we might partake in the inheritance that God has given us. We are all adopted to participate in this. This means that, that when God gave an inheritance to Christ, what he said is, I am pleased in him. He has inherited eternal life and he will rule for eternity with me. And that we as his sons, both male and female, partake in that inheritance with him. That we get to worship God, be declared not guilty by the Father, that we are loved and forgiven, and that we will rule with him for eternity. And I love what it says in verse 27. He says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So here's, here's what Paul's doing is he's having his readers go back to Genesis chapter 3 and remember something that's been true about the entire human race since sin entered the world. Go with me real quick. Genesis chapter 3. I'm just gonna, we're just going to look at two verses back there. But Genesis chapter 3 verse 7. Adam and Eve have eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Right? And they've sinned and transgressed. And look at what happens here. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So, Adam and Eve sin, and what's the first thing that happens? God kills them. No. The first thing that happens to them is they realize they've done something wrong, and they're ashamed of it. The first thing that happens to the human race when sin enters the world is that there's shame and guilt over what they've done. And so they start trying to cover themselves up. Right? And then we know that inevitably they end up going off and hiding somewhere in the garden that when God comes to find them, you know, as if God can't find them. You know, God's the greatest hide-and-seek player of all time. He's going to find them, okay? That, 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 that God immediately says, like, while he's looking for them, Adam's like, you know, I'm hiding. And God's like, did you eat from the tree? Right? By, by the way, as a parent, every parent knows when their kid's done something like that. I just imagine that's exactly what was going on in that moment. When you get to verse 21, look at God's mercy towards Adam and Eve. Right, read verse 21 with me. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. One of the first things that God does in his mercy towards Adam and Eve, who just rebelled against him and sinned and really set the entire human race on a trajectory that was rebellious towards God, as he says, I know they're guilty I know they're feeling shame for what they've done. I'm going to clothe them. I'm going, to co I'm going to cover them up. And so Paul, in verse 27, then back in, in Galatians chapter 3, is calling his reader to remember this. 
that one of the first things God did for sinners was clothe them from their guilt and from their shame. But that was temporary. That in Christ, those that have trusted in Jesus for their forgiveness as, and trusted him as their Lord and Savior are baptized into them and they put on Christ, meaning he is the garment. He does cover us from our sin. That we are forgiven. That shame had entered the world, but it's there no longer. That Paul's alluding to faith in Christ is to be declared acceptable and your shame to be covered up permanently because of what Jesus has done. So he says, hey, as opposed to following the law, if you're a follower of Jesus and your faith is him, your sons, and you get to take part in that inheritance, you're clothed in the righteousness of Christ, forgiven, loved, no longer crushed by the weight of guilt and shame. And the last thing he says in verse 28, look, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Verse 21 declares that under God we are all equal and unified in him. And he mentions three planes of society that that falls under. Culturally, he says Jew or Greek. Those were Jews did not like anyone who was not Jewish. That there was a lot of racial tension between cultural Jews and anyone who wasn't culturally Jewish. And in the midst of this, right, Paul is saying the, the primary agent of racial reconciliation in our world is the gospel. The, you know how you fix race problems? You remind people that they're all equal before God. They're all guilty before him because of their sin and they're all forgiven and loved because of what Christ did. Right, that inherit, and I'm not saying that that was the only thing that's going to repair race relations in our country, because I know that we have a long way to go as a country. But I'm telling you this, that if as a nation and as a people and as the church where it needs to start, with race relations the way that they are right now, in my 31 years, I would say in the last two years, it's the worst I've ever seen it. Okay? And some of it needs to be bad before it can get better. The biggest problem I have with everything that I'm seeing, though, is it's starting in the wrong place. It wants to start through social justice programs and money. And I'm here to tell you that if we don't start with the gospel, it will all be for naught. Right? You know how you cure a racist of racism? You remind him that he is equal before God, just like whatever people group of whatever race or culture that he doesn't like. And he has a prejudice towards. That God sees both as dignified and valuable, but also transgressors and sinners. And that Christ died for all, both Jew and Greek. And that the great unifier is the gospel. He says, then he goes on to say this, that the gospel doesn't just unify the human race culturally, but also unifies across socioeconomic classes. Another major problem in first century Rome, which continues to be a problem in 2017 in America. God doesn't care if you are poor or rich. One is not better than the other. You are all equal in the eyes of God in regards to justification. You are all sinners in desperate need of what Christ has done for you. And lastly, across gender, male, female, 
in a culture that esteemed men as more important than women. God does not care that he created women and men in his image and likeness, that they bear his image, both our value intrinsically by God, and that before God, males and females are both sinners desperately in need of God's mercy towards them in Christ. And so Paul paints two very different pictures in these verses. The law versus the gospel. Slavery versus adoption. It's about God and how we view him is the reason Paul does this. The reason Paul wants to contrast these two things so much is because if we run to the law, inevitably our view of God gets skewed and that's where things go wrong. If we run to the law as our means of justifying ourselves, we will view God as a master who is harsh and cruel, constantly driving us to perform and do the right thing. But if we view God as he really is, which is loving father and creator, a good father, not just some sovereign deity who put everything in motion and is looking out over you like, you know, a middle-level manager who's waiting to yell at you for your performance review. But if we view him as a father, a dad who we can trust, who we can trust to forgive, who we can trust to love, we know then that we were once fatherless and now are not because of what Christ did for us. My favorite show on television right now is a show on NBC called This Is Us. How many of you guys have seen that? Okay, about six of you. Okay, Hulu's great. I would highly recommend you go and, and watch the show um, if you're not binging something else. Um, and so I don't want to ruin the entire premise of the show, but my favorite character on the show is this African-American guy named Randall. And um, Randall was, was born into a, a family whose mother, his mother died of drug overdose, like basically from the, from the outset, right after she gave birth. And the father was also a drug addict. And so basically Randall got dropped off at the firehouse. And so the firemen bring the baby into the hospital and the main family in the story um, was there with their own children and they end up adopting Randall. And I'm, I'm leaving out a lot of parts because I don't want to ruin it for those of you guys I want to go back and watch it. And early on in the show, Randall um, is this brilliant, brilliant young man academically. Um, but he's struggling with growing up in a white house and being black. And one of the things I find fascinating is very early on in the show, he, he meets his birth dad. And they kind of give you the, the picture of what it look, looks like for him to have a relationship with his birth dad. But my favorite part of the show is seeing their flashbacks for Randall to his father, who is this guy named Jack Pearson, who's the guy who raised him. And seeing his interactions with his dad, he's, not, he's a brilliant kid, but he also has a lot of issues. He struggles with anxiety and perfectionism. And every time you see him flash back or see something with his dad, you see his dad lovingly, patiently shepherding him, reminding him of who he is, encouraging him, 
calming in his moments of anxiety and fear and disappointment, being a rock for him when everything is crumbling around him. And the reason I love this so much is because we are all Randalls. Every single one of us in this room this morning is like Randall, right? Born into a world alienated from our father, right? Not knowing who he is. Living in fear and anxiety, constantly having the weight of the world thrown on our shoulders. You need to be this woman. You need to be this man. You need to be this kind of student. You need to be this kind of daughter or son. You need to be this kind of employee. You need to be this kind of mom or dad. And the weight of it all just builds and builds and builds and builds until it starts crushing you. And sometimes even our earthly fathers are part of that building and that crushing. And then we come to the scriptures. And we see Jesus say things like, Come to me, you who are weary and heavy burdened, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You've spent your life trying to perform and be the same way Randall does in the show This Is Us. You don't have to. I love you because I choose to. I love you because I'm God. I love you because I'm your father. And you are my son. You are my daughter. I loved you so much that in the midst of your rebellion and your hatred and sin towards me, I sent my own son to die on the cross in your place to both pay the penalty for your sin but to extend grace and mercy and forgiveness to you. If there's one thing you guys take away from this time this morning in the Word, it would be this. God is not some cruel taskmaster trying to put a bunch of rules and regulations on you. He's a loving Father who knows what's best for you. So much so that He devised the plan to save the human race from themselves. So much so that he wants to have a relationship with you. He wants to know who you are. He wants to talk with you through prayer. He wants to teach you through his word. He wants to encourage you through both his word, but also your relationships with other sons and daughters who call him dad. And that as a church, we get to be one big giant family in the midst of all of our flaws, sins, screw-ups, no matter who you are or what you've done, we all have the same story. We were fatherless, and because of Christ, God is our father now. He is our dad. He loves us, and I know him. As you take communion this morning and as we play these last few songs, would you reflect on that and just thank God that he is our father and that he loves and cares for us. Let's pray. God, I think one of the hardest things for us to do is to throw off the change of self-righteousness and performance. Uh, so many of us want to be self-starters, self-sufficient, strong individuals. 
And inevitably when we do that and we run to that, what we also end up doing is running away from you and our need for you as dad. Look, I don't know where everyone in this room is this morning. I don't know what's going on in their lives, but you do. You know those who are struggling in relationships. You know those who are struggling with kids. You know those who are struggling in their jobs. You know those who are struggling in school. You know those who are struggling with family members carrying the burdens of this world and they're just trying desperately to hold it together. God, would you comfort them right now? Help them to know that what they need is to give it over to you. To know you as dad. To let dad comfort them in this season. To let you be their hope and their peace. Not as their rule maker or manager or boss. but as their loving heavenly father who created them and knows them. Father, remind us of that this morning. May we take that with us and believe it. And as we take communion this morning, may we confess our sin and joyfully repent of it, thankful that Jesus died for it and put it to death and that we are no longer guilty of it. Jesus, thank you for this time encourage us as we continue to worship you this morning and I ask this all in your name.